gentlemen, welcome to The Warrior Life with Justin Mergliani. This show celebrates the warrior and every person walking the planet. My warrior life was born out of a battle with ulcerative colitis and now a permanent ileostomy bag. My charity, Checkmates Charitable Association's mission is to rid the world of inflammatory bowel disease. What are you a warrior for? Hey, Chuck, got a good show on today. Who do we got today? We got Rick Beaujolais. Uh, Rick Beaujolais is the brother of Roger Beaujolais, and uh, Roger used to work for Morton Fiac Hall, the company that made the O-rings for the solid rocket boosters, and uh, the night before the Challenger launch, he tried to stop that launch because he knew that the O-rings were faulty. You know, I saw a special on that uh, a couple months ago on the anniversary of the of the um, Challenger explosion, mm-hmm. and uh, there, there's a great story on there. And uh, if you get a chance to watch it, it's well worth your time. But um, yeah, exactly what you said about you know the the, the sealant rings and and the explosion. They say that because of that, you know, the space shuttle got infinitely more uh, safe in the the preamble that had to go afterwards. But uh, what are you guys speaking about today? We're going to talk about what it was like for Roger to go through trying to stop Challenger and and all the terrible things that happened to him because of his honesty. Uh, He was a whistleblower, and uh, I call him the eighth victim. Uh, He was the eighth victim of that space shuttle uh, disaster. And and what happened happening to him? He wound up having a lot of problems in in Mortithiacal. They treated him as a pariah. and he also suffered a nervous breakdown, along with his wife, Roberta, which is really tragic. Well, I'm really interested in hearing this story. It's going to be a good one. I know uh, I, I know Rick a little bit, and he's a really great guy, so we're going to get some good information. Good. Coming up here, Rick Beaujolais. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, today, we have a very special guest. His name is Rick Beaujolais. He's the brother of Roger Beaujolais, former uh, engineer at Morton Fiacal. Hey, Rick, glad to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, Justin. Thanks so much. So, uh, Rick, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, who, who's Roger Beaujolais. Who, who was Roger Beaujolais? Well, it all begins with our family values. Uh, our parents taught us to follow the golden rule, give a fair day's work for a fair day's pay, always do your best, and whatever you choose to do in life, make sure it's something you love and do it with passion. He was the oldest of four boys and took this seriously as he embarked on setting the best example for the rest of us boys. He taught us how to play tennis and was a two-time city champ. He was an excellent skater and hockey player. For both sports, he made his own setup with string tennis rackets, would sharpen his own skates. Soon as friends and competitors would ask him to service their equipment, and with this money, helped him pursue his education. So, uh, Rick, how, how did uh, America get to know the name Roger Beaujolais? What, what, what was the incident that brought him to the forefront? Well, he was, he was involved in the Challenger disaster, and, and Roger was in charge of the team uh, that would travel down to Kennedy Space Center, disassemble and, and document the condition of the solid rocket booster segment that what Michael made. And then have them load onto a train and ship back to Utah to be reassembled and shipped back. He noticed the Viton O-ring erosion in substandard performance nearly two years before the Challenger disaster, and reported its findings continually to Morton Firefall Management after every launch. So, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what what Roger saw 
when he examined the O-rings, I think the, uh, the, the one flight, the temperature was 53 degrees, and Roger found something pretty startling after that. What was that, Rick? Yes, he noted the uh, primary O-ring. There were two O-rings in each joint, rocket booster joint. There were five segments, so there were three different sets of O-rings in the uh, uh, stack. Actually, four sets. But uh, uh, what he noticed was the primary O-ring was was uh, nearly uh, eroded 100% through. And, of course, there was a secondary redundant seal, but... Um, he, that really caused him to worry, and he started really focusing uh, in much more detail uh, you know, because you know the, his his fear was you know the the greatest fear in any of these programs is the loss of human life. So he was very very concerned and uh, started really uh, trying to ratchet up the uh, uh, attention to detail with uh, Morton Firefall Management. So what was uh, Roger's training and background? To, how did he become uh, an engineer with Morton Thiokol and get on the uh, the team to create those O-rings for the uh, solid rocket boosters? Well, Roger received his engineering degree from uh, Lowell Technological Institute, which is now uh, UMass Lowell, and he received a degree in, in 1960. He, he almost didn't go to college and was learning the trade of carpentry at Lowell Trade High School. Uh, one of his teachers noticed he had excelled in math and encouraged him to switch to the college course at the whole high school. And he received help from his teachers to make the transition. And uh, he uh, uh, basically started his career in 1960 at a company called Hamilton Standard, which is now called Hamilton Avnet, in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. He set out to make a difference in industry. His first project was a gantry tra- crane that would be used to pick up and load heavy equipment onto various bombers and military transports. The design he attempted went through the specifications of the main beam for the crane. Roger immediately interjected that the design of the beam was substandard and would fail. Needless to say, his boss, the vice president of engineering and an MIT graduate, was very upset that the pet project was challenged by this new graduate from a own school. The next morning, he was summoned to the boss's office, where he saw a scale balsa wood model of the gantry train that had been built overnight. Roger was asked to take some pins that simulated payload weights and place them on the beam to show how it would fail. Sure enough, the beam twisted and broke into pieces, much to the boss's amazement. He stayed there for a few years, met and married his wife, Roberta, and then soon after, informed the family that they were moving out west to California to work on a big contract for the B-1 bomber. Roger's hard work and skill soon established him as an expert in structures and airframes, which eventually got him involved with the airframe. During the California years, he and Roberta started their family and had two beautiful girls, Palmer and Dalton. Except for a brief two-year period, they pulled back and he worked against the Hamilton. Roger applied his built working with multiple defense contractors, such as Rockwell International, North American Rockwell, Grumman Aerospace, and others. Uh, he, he lived in the Southern California area between Los Angeles and San Diego. And then in 1980, while looking at the LA Times to be his day, uh, saw the big ad for Multiplier Call, and they decided to give it a try and move to Utah. 
A few years prior to the move, they became warm and decided it would be good to leave rat racing traffic in Southern California and enjoy life in the country. Both of their girls were in high school at the time, not, not really happy about leaving their friends or the beaches of California. But after a few years, things settled down, and Roger ran and became the mayor of Willard, Utah, a town of approximately 1,500, located in approximately 30 miles north of Salt Lake. Things were going well for the family, and, and uh, you know, they, they, you know, up until that point, but they, they started noticing these overing problems, uh, you know, uh, that, that's when everything started to change for Roger. So one thing that I think we see in, in all walks of life, we see it, you know, uh, in corporate America, we see it in uh, religious uh, organizations that uh, they're just and, and certainly politics. There seems to be a lot of if something goes wrong, we cover it up. Uh, we don't want to expose any of that dirty laundry. Uh, and I'm sure NASA felt that way. Uh, especially after the accident. Uh, Roger was known as a whistleblower, for sure. Uh, how sure was Roger that that shuttle was going to be doomed? Uh, from what I've heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Rick, I think he said to his wife, Roberta, when he got home, she asked him, how was your day? And he said, good, except we're going to kill seven astronauts tomorrow. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. Um, the night before, um, they, they were predicting... The, uh, the next day, the, you know, the morning of the launch, the temperatures in Florida were going to be in the high teens for the launch, which was the lowest ever for shuttle launch. <coughs> Excuse me. Sure. Roger told me that before every launch, NASA would hold a conference call and review every system that made up the space shuttle. These calls would last several hours, and the tone set by NASA was always to err on the side of safety. Roger and his fellow engineers were confident that with this data and pictures on the O-ring erosion that they had and the cold weather forecast, NASA would almost certainly view this as a problem and delay the launch. Keep in mind that the previous, uh, his previous concern was at 53 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. Um, it been 51, but it, was, it wasn't that range. So uh, this, was, this was far lower than they had ever launched it. However, the opposite happened as NASA had recently experienced a rash of technical and weather delays, which was creating some negative press, and also the pressure from Congress to get things under control or else lose funding for the project. Uh, so, you know, NASA put more than firefall management on the hot seat and had them defend... You were saying um, the, NASA was worried about losing funding? Yes. So, you know, uh, NASA put more than five call management on the hot seat and had them defend why they shouldn't launch instead of addressing the safety issue. One fire call requested to discuss this offline. And then all this has been documented in the two made for TV movies depicting this disaster. It was made to look like they went offline for a few minutes and then returned. You know, like, you know, they had a commercial break or something, you know? Right, yeah. yeah. So Roger told me that this, in fact, was a 45-minute shouting match 
than in soup between Morton Fire Call managers and the engineers. Roger pleaded with them at the top of his lungs, raising his voice a few more arguments. In the end, management chose to make a business decision and ignore the evidence presenting, you know, the outline, you know, outlining this impending disaster. It was it was awful. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a a, a part of that evening where uh, I th- I think it was was a Joe Kilmeister was he the uh, the head of Morton Thigh Call at that time? He was the uh, vice president of engineering. And he called Roger. He said, "Well, you know, take off your engineering hat, put on your your management hat." Well, that was the quote that I thought. I that, that's what I was remembering. Yep. Yeah. So uh, you know, Roger says. You know, the hell with your management experience. You know, if something goes wrong, which I feel is a strong chance that something will go wrong, you're going to kill seven astronauts. Right. And, you know, of course, they still, you know, wouldn't listen. So when the next morning, uh, Roger gets into the office, the shuttle's about to be launched. Uh, he doesn't want to watch the launch, right? He didn't even want to look at it. Nope. And he gets coaxed into looking at the launch, watching it on TV. And tell me what happens right off the bat. They, they, they ignite the engines, and, and Roger feels what? He, he, he leaned to his colleague, and he said, we just dodged the bullet. Yep, yep. And, and, uh, and so he thought, because he thought, him and his colleagues felt it was going to blow up right on the uh, launch pad. But uh, so, you know, he was... You know, cautiously optimistic, and then you know, it was 90 seconds into the uh, uh, the launch when when all of a sudden you saw the explosion, right. and you know, and a lot of people uh, remember that uh, it took off NASA almost 24 hours before they really released any details, and Roger told me in uh, uh, in a face-to-face meeting I had with them back in the early 90s, he said that they knew exactly what happened eight hours after the launch, and they had already recovered the capsule. The astronauts did not die in, in the explosion. Mm-hmm. If you look very, very carefully, there's a little, you can see the capsule peel off to the right when you, when you see that explosion. And what killed them was hitting the seafloor in the Gulf of Mexico, which was fairly shallow where they were going to land, at, at 200 miles an hour. That's what actually killed them. It just knocked the explosion, just knocked them out. Yeah, and, and if I'm correct, the explosion, uh, what we saw was really a fireball where the uh, fuel was burning up, but the end, the uh, orbiter itself just disintegrated. Is that right? The, the orbiter was intact. The uh, it was, you know, if I say the capsule was that was going to be launched into the atmosphere, probably thirty seconds after that, uh, was uh, was still intact. It was the the rocket booster that blew up. And, and uh, keep in mind that you have this huge uh, solid rocket uh, tank that's uh, uh, primarily hydrogen, and uh, and then they pump the oxygen through there, and and so you're. You're sitting on a, a, a controlled bomb that burns you know, at a very high rate, but burns from the inside out, and that uh, solid rocket fuel is cast into the big tank in the middle, 
and it burns. It's about four feet thick, six feet thick, and uh, it uh, you know is enough to, to get them up into the uh, the atmosphere uh, through the atmosphere into into space. So now, <clears throat> pardon me. The, uh, the the accident happens. President Reagan, of course, is upset, uh, uh, obviously because of the accident, but also because Crystal McAuliffe was the first teacher in space. He had commissioned that uh, to happen. So he calls together the uh, Rogers Commission to try to uh, figure out what happened in the accident. So what was Rogers' role on the Rogers Commission? Oh, Morton Fire Call was, you know, they sent out a a memo to everybody saying, you know, everybody, uh, uh, don't don't talk to the press, don't talk to, you know, any investigators and stuff like that. We're going to keep this, you know, uh, uh, confidential to the company. And and Roger, you know, just couldn't live with that. And uh, he volunteered to testify in front of the Rogers Commission against the wishes of what I call management. Right. And he presented all data and pictures that he had presented to the management that led up to the disaster. Uh, very interested in this data and pictures was Dr. Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize recipient of physics in 1965 and an MIT graduate. He was a renowned physicist and professor at Cornell University for many years. He called Rogers several times in the evening during the commission's uh, investigation to get more information on his findings. And would always start a discussion with Dr. Bojoli. And Roger would always, you know, be, no, no, you know, uh, Dr. Feynman, I I just have a bachelor's degree. I am not a PhD. So Dr. Feynman would then continue his conversation and call him Dr. Bojoli and ask his question. And later, he learned that Dr. Feynman was paying him the highest compliment that he could by acknowledging his data and conclusions. That's incredible. From Rogers' answers, Dr. Feynman was able to demonstrate to the Rogers Commission and the American public who was watching why the O-rings failed uh, with his famous example of placing the uh, large elastic band in ice water and letting them sit there while he was talking. And then he pulled them out and stretched them while they broke apart and beat. So that's what happened. The the temperatures were just too cold for the O-rings to properly seal. Now... Of course, Mortify Cole and NASA, I'm sure, were not thrilled <laughs> that uh, Roger had, had given all that information. And now the public knew that they both, NASA and Mortify Cole, knew that the uh, O-rings had serious flaws. So now Roger has to go back to work in that atmosphere. So tell me a little bit about what happened in Mortify Cole post the Rogers Commission. Well... Essentially, after the disaster and his testimony to the Rogers Commission, he was essentially pigeonholed at Morton Firecall. All of his colleagues who stood with him were old enough to be able to retire early and, and, and did. In January of 86, Roger was just shy of his 50th birthday and could not choose this option. He was essentially ostracized at Morton Firecall, and, and things became very unpleasant to him. Yeah. And I know I have family members, friends, uh, hopefully myself, who try to do the right thing in the face of, of uh, adversity. Uh, and, and Roger was a huge example of that. Um, 
So this was pretty much career suicide, right? I mean, Roger pretty much knew that once he blew the whistle, this was going to be very tough for him, uh, both in his career and his life. Yes. He was, uh, shortly after uh, uh, he was shunted his job, Henry Burdick could not believe being treated like that for doing the right thing. And both of them were uh, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Roger went out on medical leave for two years until the benefits were exhausted, and then he was forced to return to work. Their girls, Norma and Darlene, were now young adults and did what they could to help their parents get this very dark period in their lives. But basically, he, he was, uh, uh, you know, on, on, upon his return, he was presented with an option to choose a transfer to any division within Morton Thiokol. And uh, after seeing what life was, was like in work and what... Uh, what it was like before he went out on medical leave, he politely declined the offer, stating that no matter where I go in this organization, my name is still Roger Bosley. Mm. It was a matter of time before finding an excuse to fire me. Roger proposed instead that Morton Iacall could put him 65 and retire him with full benefit. And he would just go up and quietly. Morton Iacall, of course, refused. So Roger was really left no choice but to... Uh, file a lawsuit and uh, you know, hired a lawyer in Washington, D.C., and filed two lawsuits, one against Morton Firecall uh, for uh, uh, $1 billion replacement of the uh, shuttle, and then another separate $10 million lawsuit against NASA for uh, you know, basically uh, uh, putting the astronauts' lives in danger. So the... Uh, Frivolous lawsuit that they uh, that Morton Firecall felt it was. They met it with uh, he had one lawyer, you know, one main lawyer in uh, in uh, Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. The Firecall team of nine lawyers uh, came in and, and they just buried him with paperwork and delayed you know in court using every trick in the book for approximately five years, spending more money than they would have if they had honored Rogers' retirement request. Meanwhile, these NASA lawsuits met similar resistance, and they uh, continued to encounter every legal maneuver possible. During that time, the astronauts' families also sued NASA. And when the astronaut lawyers asked Roger to provide a deposition in these seven cases, NASA promptly settled each lawsuit for millions and helped each family to set up these regional space centers you see now guaranteeing the family future income stream and promoting science and engineering to the public. Roger gladly offered to help these families and we could to help them achieve closure, but no one, not one of them ever extended a simple thank you or offer to help him and his family. After 30 years, actually it's 32 years now, I find this appalling and inexcusable. In the end, after five, six years of staff, stall tactics in the courts, and thousands of dollars in legal inspectors, the uh, judge in Washington, D.C. proposed that a stay of venue be changed from Washington to Utah, where Morton Firefall is the state's largest employer. The new judge in Utah then proposed that the two lawsuits be consolidated into one. Once that happened, he dismissed the lawsuit with prejudice. At that point, Roger was so demoralized, he decided the best thing to do was just to put it behind it and move on. Because 
you know, there was a, you know, a slim chance that he could win, but right. he'd probably spend the rest of his life fighting in the court. So you, you also talked about <clears throat> a few minutes ago how uh, both uh, Roger and Roberta uh, had post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, was there ever a point where Roger was able to, or and or Roberta, able to get over the pain that they were feeling, the torment? I know he died, was, was he 73? Yeah, he was uh, uh, 74. He was just shy of Uh, 
you know, maybe two or three a year that he did uh, up until uh, he passed away. Yeah. And Rick, you know how much I admire Roger uh, and, and you and your family. Um, one of the things I admire most is I've seen interviews with him uh, probably just a few years before he died. And it's amazing that the toughness that he had, but he also had a soft side. I, I saw him break down a few times, and really it, it puts a lump in your throat when you see a man of that strength and character and also that sensitivity. Was was he a pretty sensitive guy beyond that rough exterior? Yes, he was. And uh, um, he was, you know, just he was he really wanted to get his message out to the American public, and he and he did, you know, stop to write a book uh, with a, with a ghostwriter, and uh, you know, but uh, the, the you know he had some creative uh, differences with the writer, and it got put on hold. But you've um, he, he, seen him, you know, probably seen some some uh, episodes of him being on the History Channel and Nova and. Uh, uh, Public public broadcast. You know, uh, uh, there, there's been some interviews with him online. He did a 48 hours interview uh, back in the late 80s, and um, but the, uh, the, the he, he was he was so excited when the 20th anniversary of, of the uh, shuttle disaster came about. Right. He contacted by 60 minutes to do uh, tell his story. And he was he was so excited about this because he was he, he was thinking that finally he, the whole story is going to come out, and uh, so they sent a camera crew, and uh, they spent four days at his house filming you know and interviewing him, and and um, uh, I don't know if, if you recall ever seeing that episode, but. Uh, you know, he was all excited. He told the family it's going to be on, you know, this next Sunday. Right. And uh, turn it into watch. So, so we all sat in front of the TV, and they showed the opening uh, teaser of uh, Roger just saying, well, you know, I, I, I knew this was going to happen. It was it was unavoidable. And, and then they cut to a commercial, uh, you know, maybe five or ten seconds of uh, voice. And then they came back and gave, you know, maybe another – a minute or so of, of interview and then uh, they showed him shedding a tear which was during the third or fourth day of his interview process right all the, all the rest of that tape went on the cutting room floor and 60 minutes should get shamed to that and, and hope you know the American public forces them to release this I've I've written them several times they never got back to me and, uh, you know, Roger was, uh, uh, he told me uh, that he basically went to sleep with a conscience every night because he knew he did everything that he possibly could to save the astronauts' lives. And he said, I, I, don't, I don't know how these, all these other people involved that were complicit in this disaster can, can actually sleep. They have to have, you know, they have to have no conscience. Right. And, you know, he's not a martyr in the sense of he gave up his physical life, but certainly he was a martyr in the sense that he gave up his career and his health to do the right thing. And that's that's a pretty amazing thing. There's not a lot of people who, you know, really walk the walk. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, he sure did. He was, 
you know, it was it was tough. You know, he uh, he he lived our family values, and he taught us all to do your best and stand up for what's right. He he told me the, the dark times of the lawsuits and, and such. He received phone calls and a letter of encouragement from several celebrities, such as William Shatner, and was contacted by other whistleblowers seeking advice. Most most notably. Karen Silkwood shortly before she died. He said if he had to do it all over again, he would not have changed any of these decisions he made. He knew he did the right thing, and he knew he did it with a clear conscience. Rick, one, one thing that puzzles me, and I'll be honest with you, I, and you've seen this, we're friends on Facebook, and Every January 28th, I post something about Challenger. I mean, it was a big deal for me. I was I was 10 years old. And it really left an impression. But uh, I, I, I guess I, I don't know why more people don't post about Roger. One of the things I always post is, you know, how much I, I feel sorry for the Challenger 7 and, and how we should remember them. But also that we should remember Roger and, and his... Uh, uh, role in trying to, to do the right thing. Why do you think more people don't bring his name up as much as they should? You know, it babbles me as well because I have uh, gone for the 30th uh, anniversary, I had uh, posted the, the paper that the American Society of Mechanical Engineering had published for him, outlining in great detail, it's like a 15 page paper. All of the events, but the two years before disaster, up until the disaster, and I mean anybody who reads this that has a brain could see clearly that one fire call just you know tried to sweep this up to the rug and they didn't really care. But you know Roger fought to the last breath to, to try to save these astronauts before the launch. Yeah, it's just it's an amazing story. So, in, in getting in closing, uh, uh, Rick, what what do you think? What legacy does Roger leave to not only your family but to everyone that knows him or knows his story? Well, you know, uh, he he's you know, uh, I can't tell you how many times I, I also worked as an engineer for uh, thirty five years in industry before I had my issue, but um, I would run into uh, customers uh, that, you know, somebody else was handling and they would uh, call me into a conference room and say, uh, this is uh, Rick Bosley. And, you know, the first thing they would say is, well, are you related to Roger Bosley? Mm -hmm. And they never really expected me to say yes. And to see the, the look on their face when I said, yes, he's my brother. You know, they, they, like, they didn't know how to, how to re respond. I said, no, no, please. I'm very, very proud of my brother. You know, and he, he taught, you know, me to, to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's my hero. And, and he's, he's the hero of our whole family because, you know, he uh, was steadfast in making sure that uh, everything was done right. And, you know... Uh, and all of these uh, engineers and, and managers that, that heard him speak said, my God, what a, what a powerful thing. It made quite a difference in my career. And, and uh, I'm so glad that I got to see him speak you know, when I was going through college. And all the, you know, a lot of the major universities that he spoke at. Right. And in fact, a couple of years ago, 
uh, I got a letter from an engineer that worked for Boeing who was about 25 years into her career. And it was on, uh, you know, an older program, what they call a legacy program, and they wanted to make some changes and kind of, um, you know, take take some of the controls off that control the quality of these things. And, uh, you know, this engineer basically stood up in a conference from the project manager and said, no, this is, this is what happened. This was right around the time that the uh, Challenger disaster happened, January. Right. Said, Don't, haven't you guys ever learned that, you know, the same thing could happen as what happened. You know, uh, Roger Bosley is is responsible for, for uh, uh, setting a great example in the engineering community, and I, for one, need to stand up and, and say no to these changes. And the, the project manager said, who's Roger Bosley? <laughs> he, he was like 25 or 28 or something like that. Right. And so uh, basically... She said, "Well, let me let me take a short break." And he went and Googled it on his phone, and he came back, and and the rest of the engineers all stood stood behind this this woman, this brave woman, that said, "You know, no." And uh, so so they finally uh, agreed that they would have some more uh, discussions and 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 try to come to agreement on what to do moving forward. So she she wrote uh, Roger's daughters. Uh, the, the, the two dog is a, a beautiful letter, three-page letter. I have it somewhere, and uh, it was. He says, "I just want to let you know that Roger Bosley won." Oh, that's really great. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, brought brought tears to my eyes. Sure, sure. If they're, uh, you know, my show, Rick, and we've talked about this before, is uh, really people helping people and and. and trying to find stories that are uplifting. Is there any charity that uh, the Beaujolais family holds near and dear that you'd like to promote right now? Well, Roger, Roger died of colon cancer, and um, I, I think uh, he would like to promote the fight against cancer, and uh, I, I think he would be very happy with that because it's a very indiscriminate disease that affects every everybody in our society. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. And a lot of people who know me know that uh, I had ulcerative colitis for uh, 12 years and uh, was developing colon cancer like Roger. And uh, my life was saved with a nine-hour surgery to uh, remove that uh, the colon, the large intestine. And I have an ileostomy now, but... Uh, you know, some people are not as lucky as I am where you get it caught early enough to uh, save your life. And I got to tell you, Rick, one of the things that... Uh, I regret is that I didn't make the move to try to meet Roger uh, before he passed away. It would have been really great to have gotten a chance to shake his hand and and see what kind of guy he was. But luckily, I got to meet you and, and hear his story through your eyes. So that's that's the second best thing I could hope for. Well, yeah, you know, like I say, I'm I'm so glad that you contacted me and asked me to do this because you know his legacy is full on, and uh, we're going to do the best we can to to uh, get the message out there and uh, try to tell everybody and shout it from the highest hilltops. Well, Rick, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for sharing, you know, your personal memories of Roger and of your uh, of that time. And um, I hope we'll be in touch. Thank you. Sounds great, Rick.
That was Rick Beaujolais telling us about his brother, Roger Beaujolais. Wow. That's all I can say about that. I mean, Rick is a great guy, and uh, you can tell how much he loves his brother, Roger. And unfortunately, Roger passed away um, a few years ago. But uh, what a model of integrity that man is. You know, and I think that's, that's so important in our society that you have a whistleblower like that because there's there's the truth that you hear in the media, truth in air quotations, and then there's the real story. Right. You know, so we need more stories, you know, with Rick coming forth for his brother to say, hey, listen, this is what really happened or this is our side of the story, you know, on the, on that side of the, the issue. And Chuck, I am absolutely baffled by the fact that uh, Roger's story doesn't get more airplay. Uh Every year on January 28th, the anniversary of Challenger, I post on Facebook about Challenger. I was a kid. I was 10 years old when that happened. And uh, I always post about Roger. And and, and to me, I call him the eighth victim. He really paid a heavy price for trying to do the right thing. You know, I can't even imagine what he went through on a personal basis of, you know, tragedy of of epic proportions in your career, which is your life. Right. You know, and then to to get scapegoated inside of that – you know, there's a special, you know, that came out on the 28th of January about the Challenger. Right. Uh, and now people are stepping forward right now and they're exonerating, you know, the, the people who are actually key into trying to be the whistleblower for the NASA. And there's so much money. There's so much, uh, you know, scheduling and, and logistics behind every single launch. Right. That it, it becomes a casualty of war where NASA has to say, listen, did we do our best? Hope is a bad business plan, and let's hope we have a good launch as opposed to making sure that everything was, you know, 100% safe. And Chuck, you know, one thing that really uh, is confusing to me with NASA, as smart as that organization is, even if they didn't care about the seven people, which we know they did, why would they risk a $1.2 billion uh, shuttle and have it destroyed? If they were only worried about the bottom line financially, why did they risk that shuttle in that climate when it was so cold? You know, I think when, when there's a million moving pieces inside of every single launch. I mean, it's a massive, massive big deal. It takes a, a lot of really intelligent people to come together to make that launch even possible. And I think at that moment there, they go through their calculated algorithm with have we done everything in our due diligence to think that this is going to come through and looking back as the money morning quarterback you can look and say oh okay the seals didn't work very well because exhibit a in the sky you know lit it up like a christmas tree which really was really really tragic um but i think you know they do their due diligence to make sure that everything but there's a million moving parts in that in that train so i mean you have to really have an element of of hope that you've done the best that you possibly can do, but hope's a bad business plan. It is. It really is. Well, that was a really powerful share, and I'm really glad that, you know, you know, his story's now coming out to exonerate, you know, what his legacy. And as you heard, I'm going to do more with Rick to try to bring out even more. Yeah, and that's a, I, I love that idea as well because I think, you know, those stories need to be heard in society yes. so that way the healing can really begin uh, on Everybody's like NASA has that. The families have that. Yeah. You know, the victims have that as well. So uh, I think that was a great share. Yeah. Thanks, Chuck, for being part of it. All right. Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo and the Warrior Life were produced by Faders Unstunned Studios for Listen Up Talk Radio. If you have a comment, reach out, feedback 
at radiothatdoesnsuck.com or call us on our contact line, 1-866-269-6155.